pray before we turn to Mark chapter 10. Father in heaven, we thank you for an opportunity to gather, Lord. We do thank you that you watch over your church. It is your bride. You protect it fiercely. You watch over our purity. You direct our steps and our paths. You guide us and guard us. We are your bride. We are your church. And so we thank you for that, Lord, and we thank you that you provide leadership for your church. And we again have witnessed that today, Lord, and we, we bless you for those things. Lord, we thank you that we're diverse. In many ways, Lord, you have brought people together from all walks of life, Lord. We, we probably would not be in this room if it was not for your gospel, but your gospel has brought us together. We are now friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, and we do life together now. And so what a blessing. And so we praise you for the church that assembles at River Bend Community. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to direct our paths, continue to give us opportunity with our community, uh, but not only here, but around the world, Lord, that we would be invested in the gospel that spreads, the glory of Christ being spread throughout all the nations. But Lord, we do thank you for this present facility that we can meet here and we can gather, be taught, be discipled, grow together and do life together, Lord. Father, we'd be remiss if we did not remember those who are uh, laid up today. Some are ill, some are struggling with common coughs and flus, and there's others, Lord, that are fighting for life. Life is short, and so we pray for them, Lord, that you would encourage them, Lord. Many are watching now, Lord, that they would be encouraged by this message, by our singing, by our gathering, Lord. But we do pray, Lord, also that you would heal them and return them to us, Lord. So we would have fellowship with them once again. Father, we are so grateful that we know that whether this life ends for us by death or by your return, we know that we'll be in heaven with you. And you will set all things right. We will be like you, the Bible tells us. So we long for that day, Lord. But while we're here, may we be diligent. May we be uh, active family members who are part of a, a vibrant church, part of a ministry that continues to share this good news that we have received, Lord. May we not be slumbering or sleeping when you come. We thank you for our time together. Now bless the teaching of your word, Lord. Please pierce our hearts. Teach us your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. George Whitfield said this, he was a preacher and evangelist in the 1700s, he said, We are all self-righteous by nature. It is as natural for us to turn to a covenant of works as for a spark to fly upward. Wow, what a statement. You may say, well, I'm not self-righteous. Well, if you just said that, you're (laughs) self-righteous. It is natural for us. We constantly want to prove ourselves to other people and at times prove ourselves to God. And what often keeps people from receiving God's grace is not so much their sin, but their good works. Do you understand that? There are a lot of moral people within the world, people who obey laws and and are good citizens and good neighbors. But what keeps them from God is not so much their sin. They are sinners, all have sin, but it is their good works, and thus they don't need the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this is why our salvation is humanly impossible. It's humanly impossible to be saved by ourselves. We are not capable on our own 
to see our defrauding hearts. We have these defrauding hearts that lie to us, that worship our own goodness. And we'll see that in this text this morning. Someone greater than fallen man must love us, must speak truth into us and awaken us. Or as Jesus says, you will die in your sins. So this is the theme of our text, the blinding nature of self-righteousness. And as we will see, it is not just the rich young ruler, but it's those closest to Jesus. And what I love about Mark's passage, he goes much more extensive than than, uh, Luke and Matthew's because he turns to his disciples, those walking right with him, those knowing him, and he charges them of these very same self-righteous problems. Well, let's look at our text today. A couple of thoughts as we work our way down through. Number one, the sincerity of the self-righteous. The sincerity of the self-righteous. Self-righteousness is a a, a very tricky sin. Self-righteous people don't come out often and just say, oh, woe is me. Um, Self-righteousness, you're able to hide behind something. And this has been a theme of the Lord Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. Mark um, probably gives the most vivid account. The other accounts are in Matthew 19 and Luke 18. But here Mark gives a vivid account. And, and I think there's a reason behind that. As, as you remember way back when we started the book of Mark, we, we believe that probably Mark was a right-hand man to Peter. And as Peter preached in the early church, Mark recorded this life of Christ as Peter preached it. And so we know by the inspiration of the Spirit of God that Peter's behind this. And Peter begins to say things that resembled his own heart. And and Peter's a great example of many of us that we struggle with our own view of ourselves and cannot see what God often sees. Another interesting thing as we think about the sincerity of the self-righteous is this account comes on the heels of Jesus' great sermon that we looked at last week of a childlike faith. So he's using a contrast here. Last week, nobody comes to the kingdom unless you come as a child. Remember we talked about that, open hands. I got nothing, I just need you. I can't offer you my goodness, I can't offer you my works. I'm like a child that needs mom. Needs dad, needs grandparents. I need you. And then this contrast comes with a young man coming to him with all of his deeds. The present tense of the verbs in this opening phrase in verse 17 gives us the idea that Jesus is trying to leave the house. He's trying to go. Remember, he's on his way to Jerusalem. This is the final run of the Lord Jesus out in public. He's got to get from here over to Jerusalem. And his goal is to die on the cross for us. But we kind of see this event happening. So maybe it's something like this. Jesus is trying to get out the door. He's trying to leave this house. He has just taught of what saving faith looks like through through a childlike faith. And, And they're beginning to go. The journey must go on. He must get to Jerusalem. And here comes this man. Notice in verse 17, as he was setting out on the journey, a man ran up to him. A man ran up to him. Now, Matthew describes this as a young man. Luke refers to him as a ruler. And so this is where we get this term of a rich, young ruler. And it's possible that this young ruler was from a local synagogue. He, he could have uh, had some standing in the religious community. 
but it's probably more like that this young man was influential because he had wealth, and, and on top of his wealth, he, he was an example of behavior. He, he kept the law. He, he, he was not a problem in society, and so through that, in his wealth and his prominence, he became possibly a leader even at a young age. And thus, we get the term at the heading of your chapter, rich young ruler. But notice he's running. I think this is interesting. This reveals there's a cert, certain sense of urgency to get to Christ. The, the text doesn't tell us why. Maybe he heard Jesus was leaving. Um, uh, but, but I think it's more than that. And he's running. There's something he must know. There's something he must ask. He needs something from Jesus. And it's quite apparent as you study ancient history, particularly around this time, the religious elite didn't run for anybody. But this young man's running. And notice that he runs to Jesus, and that's not all he does. The text says he knelt before him. He knelt before him. See, there's a sincerity to him. That's why I said in our first point, there's a sincerity of self-righteousness. It often carries a real sincere heart in some ways. Though there's sin in there, there is fallen, there's a sincerity, and he's coming. He's running to Christ. He's kneeling before him. This depicts just a, a profound respect for Christ. Uh, it was not customary for, for people to bow to a rabbi. And that's what Jesus would have been called in his day. He was called teacher. He was called rabbi. So this, this posture is unusual. It's acknowledging this man has some superiority. This man has authority. He's, he's acknowledging that. And then notice in our text, verse 17, that this young man makes this statement. He says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, this is a very formal address as this young, rich ruler is looking for spiritual guidance. He calls Jesus good. I think this is insincerity, right? But this young man's view of goodness would have been based on his moral view. He would have been looking at Jesus from the moral lens of the law. But Jesus is not going to let him get away with that. And it's possible that he was looking to Jesus as, as this, this one teacher, this one more thing. If he could just add one more thing that I could assure myself that I could have eternal life. I've done all these other things. Maybe this guy has the peace to this. Maybe he has the, and I, I thought about this, I studied, I thought he probably looked at him that Jesus had the last piece to the secret of perfection. And if I could just get that, I know I'd have eternal life he asked a vital question i think that's very important that everyone should ask and it was often discussed around the jewish or the religious community what shall i do notice that verb there what i do to inherit eternal life well this verb's a, a key verb when you want to study this because the emphasis is on i do it implies that there's a probable achievement that i can do in order to attain something it's in a, a subjective sense, right? So, and the idea of subjunctive is that there's, there's a probability. So I'm coming to you, and I want to know the probability of if I do one more thing, if there's one more thing that I can do that I can gain heaven. In other words, he was looking for that one great task that would give him assurance. He uses the word inherit. That means to come into possession of. That's important, isn't it? Because what he's telling you 
is I don't possess this. At least I'm not sure I possess this. How can I know that I can inherit, come into the possession of the assurance that I'll be in heaven, that I'll inherit the kingdom of God? This young man assumes that he has the necessary abilities. He has the willingness to do it. He just needs guidance to make the next step to find assurance. I think this question lets us understand the mindset of the religious community of Jesus' day. The kingdom of God was built on obtaining. The law wasn't enough, was it, for them? Pharisees added a a new law, a new tradition for every day of the week. They added 365 more traditions from washing of hands to, to straining gnats in order to gain the kingdom. I'm sure this young man worked at all of these. And he looks at this and says, there's one more thing. What could it be? Well, of course, this is completely false. This is not the way. This young man is on the wrong road. He's actually on the path to destruction. He's probably the most moral person in the community. He probably has an outward life that is absolutely exemplary to all of humanity. And yet the Bible tells us he's on the wrong road. Justification is never produced by works. You can never stand before God and say, here's what I've done. That's what Ephesians 2 is about. You will not boast in front of God. You will not stand in front of him and say, this is what I've done. Let me in. And yet that's what was taught. Is that much different today? When we think about when we get challenged, maybe it's in a sermon or, or, or even reading your Bible, Sometimes you come upon something and your first reaction, I know this is with me as well, your first reaction is say, well, yeah, I'm okay in that area. We, we, we easily get very defensive when it comes to something that we may be deficient in. And then we may take some, some decisions, well, uh, I better sure up, so I better do this and this, and we start making a little list. It's so easy for us. It's so easy for us. And yet there's many that darken the doors of churches day in and day out, Sunday after Sunday, who come with their works before God. And see, this is why Jesus will say, and we were reminded of this this last Wednesday in our interview with Kyle, this is why Jesus will say, I never knew you. But we did all this in your name. I read my Bible in your name. I went to church in your name. Don't I get credit for this? See, there's those, he will say, I never knew you. Salvation is by Christ alone. That little phrase alone, that little word that we tack on to our doctrinal statements is so important. It's what divides us from all the other religions of the world. We do not believe in the effort of man in any shape or form. We teach that justification comes by Christ alone, not by our works. And so hear this, I'm sure, sweet, well-meaning, sincere young man is on the wrong road. Number two, self-righteousness will rob you of insurance. Self-righteousness will rob you of insurance. Look at verses 18 with me. And Jesus said to him, I'm not sure he knows who he's dealing with, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. First he who do you think I am? <laughs> I think that's what he's after here. 
He's worried about, is there one more step that I can gain perfection on this life so I can assure myself eternity? And Jesus wants to deal with his view of him. Why do you call me good? And Jesus is challenging this man's really kind of a superficial use of the word. His faulty understanding of the word was the basis of his problem. He doesn't know who he's talking to. He viewed his view over Jesus was a human moral. He, he was a human moralist. He was good. He, he seems to maybe obtain this perfection, and I can gain something for him, so, so I call him good. But Jesus is going to describe another level of goodness <laughs> that pales. And notice what he says at the end of the verse. He says, no one is good except God alone. He just goes at things so different. You know, if somebody's come up and said, hey, good pastor, how are you doing? <laughs> I, when my first thought, say, hey, uh, why do you call me good? See, Jesus can see the heart of this young man. He has the ability to do that. And he's, he's in essence, Jesus is saying, you want to talk about good? Well, let me tell you what the standard of goodness is. God alone sets that standard of goodness. In essence, yes, he's saying, yes, I am good. But absolutely, God is good alone. And any goodness in the world is derived from him and him alone. In so many words, he's teaching in equality with the Father that his standard of goodness is way beyond keeping a list of rules. I think this young man thought goodness was personal and morally attainable. He needed to recognize that God alone was a source of goodness. Brothers and sisters, it's so important when God gives us an opportunity to live in his goodness and act in his goodness that you and I give him credit for that. The very fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is not our fruits. It's the fruit of the Spirit. (laughs) And in that great list, the fruit of the Spirit is the term goodness. And so our goodness is, is based on God. It's part of now our standing that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this situation, this young man had based his goodness on his own. And he looked at Jesus that Jesus had attained something. So there is no assurance in your own goodness. And I think this is what Jesus is doing. And, and, and then there's this connection that's going on here. That if you're going to call me good and only God is good, do you understand who you're talking to? I think it's a strong teaching on the equality of the Son and the Father. I don't think this young man caught it, but those of us that know the Bible and study the Bible, we realize that Jesus is going, why do you call me good? Unless I'm God. This man was not probably prepared for that. He was just wanting the magic bullet one to assure him. There's been a lot of teachings on this, and, and probably the worst is that, uh, and this has come out of churches and all kinds of people, that, that God is good, and Jesus in his incarnation was trying to live up to the goodness of God, and in the end he would be good enough and he could die on the cross um, and, and save us from our sins. That's a very wrong, wrong view. When Jesus says only God is good, he's equating his goodness with the Father in total equality. He shares that essence with God. He shares the very attributes that God has. And Mark has pictured Jesus as nothing less than God throughout his entire letter. Everything pointed to his deity and his shared glory with the Father. 
And thus, Jesus is indicating his own deity here. Jesus was really asking this man, are you calling me good because God is good and I am good? Do you know the implications of that? Do you know what that means? Are you willing to deal with me? Notice in verse 19 what Jesus does. He immediately takes him to the next phase to try to expose his heart. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, because the young man had framed the inheritance of the kingdom based on law, based on works, Jesus takes him directly to the Ten Commandments. In fact, he takes him to a unique part of the Ten Commandments. Notice that he chooses the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth. He sums up the tenth and then returns to the fifth. Now, why did he do that? Why did he not start with the first one? Well, I I think what he's doing here is, uh, first of all, he's showing that the second half of the law deals with man's relationship with fellow mankind. How how are you doing with these things? How how are you doing? How how is your heart involved in these things? Um, Do you hate at all? Do you lust at all? Do you covet at all? Do you, do you use false language, false identity, false thinking? Do you defraud? Do you covet your neighbor's wife or house or home or animals or anything else? And how are you handling your mom and dad? So here, Jesus takes them to this. I think do not defraud, and, and only Mark does this here. I think it sums up... Uh, the 10th command, because that would have been a difficult one for him, being wealthy. And I think, uh, Brian and I talked about this the other day, we think that he used, do, not, uh, do you honor your mother and father, is because the, t- the tradition was at this time, if you had wealth and you were a religious leader, you would just say, oh, Corbin, you know, I give it all to God. I can't help you, mom and dad, I give it all to God. And so he's probably doing that for that reason. But here Jesus is, he, he's after this rich young ruler's heart. He want, I want you to know this. He, he's going after things that will expose his need of a savior. But his confidence is his own self-righteousness. Look at verse 20. Here the man says to him, speaking to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Now notice it's just now, teacher, <laughs> the good has been dropped. Isn't that interesting? So you think, well, Scott, were they, was he really connecting the, the deity of Christ and, and the shared essence of God the Father of his glory? Yeah, I think so. Because <laughs> I think he got to this and said, uh, yeah, teacher, I'm not going to equate you with God. Now, that's a major problem. The equality to God might have been too far for him. He, he cannot make that with the Lord Jesus. But his response, we begin, in his response, we begin to see his heart, which Christ was wanting to expose. He says, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Now, I I don't think, this is my personal thought here, I don't think this is full of self-praise as much as his personal disappointment. Wait a minute. I know these Ten Commandments. I've been living them since I was a kid. Is that all you have for me? where's the magic bullet where's the one thing that I can go away and feel as though when I die I'm going to go to heaven what do I need to do and so I think there's great disappointment here 
He desired that one task, and his self-righteousness was robbing him of assurance. He needed one more thing, one more thing. And here he is, unassured what will happen to him after death. It's interesting that age 30 was about the limit of what they would use the word youth in the ancient world. So this means that since he can remember, he has kept the law. And he met the letter of the law, right? As the Pharisees had point, they pointed out, right? They, he considered himself blameless. As I got thinking about this, um, I, I looked at the Matthew account in Matthew 19, verse 20. Matthew adds this. He said this, what am I still lacking? Let me show you. Go to Philippians chapter 3 because Apostle Paul went through this as well. Apostle Paul could have been this rich young ruler raised in a Pharisee family, doubtlessly had great wealth that was kept within the family. And Paul ran into Jesus Christ as well. It happened to be on the road to Damascus. And there, basically, Jesus asked him the same thing. Give up on everything and follow me. And let's look what happened to the Apostle Paul. Chapter 3, verse 3. He's dealing with the false teachers that are um, confronting the church in Philippi and all the works-based relationship with God that they were trying to present. And so Paul says in verse 3, we are the true circumcision. That means we're the true ones set apart who worship in, in the Spirit of God, in the glory of Christ, and look at this phrase, and have put no confidence in the flesh. That's, that's the difference. That's the difference in a saved person and an unsaved person. Moralistic or not, if you put confidence in the flesh that you have gained God, gained your inheritance in some way through the works of your flesh, the works of your human effort, you are not in the family of God. And Paul says, I put no confidence. And then he gives a description of this, right? Verse four, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has of a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. So he's gonna say, you wanna talk about good works? Let me give you a little list. Verse five, circumcised on the eighth day. Boy, if you're, if you're gonna hang around uh, Judaism, <laughs> And you didn't make that eighth day circumcision as a young boy? Well, you already got one strike against you. So he didn't make that clear. Right from the beginning, from day eight, I was walking with God (laughs) of the nation of Israel. I'm not one of these guys that have kind of been grafted in in some way. Hey, I'm of Israel. And then he goes even a little farther. Notice the tribe of Benjamin. Yeah, we're, we're the guys that get with it, man. We're the tough group. We're the ones that fought for the borders of Israel. We're, we're not pushovers. Hebrew of Hebrews. You want to talk about a poster boy? I was, on the, I was a poster boy of, of Hebrews. To the, as to the law, a Pharisee, should I say no more? We kept everything. As to zeal, oh man, I persecuted the church because they were teaching something different than what we believed. I persecuted the church. As to righteousness, which is found in the law, look at this, found blameless. Paul says, you want to have a little argument about works? You want to have a little discussion about how you get there? Here's my pedigree. But he doesn't end there. Look at verse 8. More than that. Excuse me, 7. But whatever things were gained to me, this 
self-proclaimed blamelessness, this self-righteousness I had for keeping the law, this heritage, this bloodline, these, all these things I had. He says, but whatever, in verse seven, things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You will never see God by your own works, by your bloodlines, and your church attendance. You'll never see him. you only see Christ judge you. And Paul's making this clear, this one who had this great pedigree, he's now rejecting that verse eight. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. There's nothing that pales to knowing Christ. All the status Paul had, all the prestige he had, all the people saying, oh, you're such a good person. He didn't want any of that surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what he wanted. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. That's an all I have circled in my Bible. Wow. All things? Paul says, I gave up it all to follow Christ. And what does he mean by that? Well, certainly if we study the life of Paul, he, he's wifeless, Seems to be childless. At his age, he should have been married, probably arranged marriage within Pharisees. Some writer says his wife died. There's no, no understanding of that in the scriptures. His man may have lost everything. And he lived in a tent on the road preaching the gospel. He gave it all up. And, he, and he's not here to brag about those things. He's bragging to you about the gloriousness of Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to present to this man in Mark chapter 10, and this man's going to walk away from it. But Paul says, look, I count it all as lost. Prestige, money, all of that, I would never take that over knowing Christ. Notice what he goes on to say, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. I'm not going to hold on to anything other than the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 9, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. That's the problem with a rich young ruler. Look, man, I've done all this from my youth. Paul says, oh, you've got to let that go. That'll damn you to hell. And he says, not having the righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Oh, that's how you get it. You come to God through faith in Christ, and you can't even get your own faith. God must grant you that faith. So everything you have in Christ, everything that assures your eternal state is given to you by God alone. And true Christians acknowledge that. That's what we do. And again, we struggle. We're not sitting here going, oh, we're perfect and got this you know, perfect life figured out. No, we go, oh God, today I sinned against you. Today I was self-righteous. I know that cost your son's death on the cross. Thank you for forgiveness that was provided. And help me to live according to him. Help the gospel, the true saving work that you've done be my motivation. Not these things, not this list, not how I dress, not how I look, not what I drive, not who I hang out with. None of that. That's all rubbish. Help me put my confidence in you. Do you pray that? Can you, can you pray that with me? God, help us put our confidence in you. We don't want to be like a rich young ruler who turns away. Go back to our text, Mark chapter 10, verse 21. The third point is radical love and truth are the only hope for the self-righteous. Radical love and truth. Notice what Jesus does. 
Verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. I just love that little phrase, looking at him. It's a strong word. It has this idea of a penetrating look. You ever see somebody kind of looking through you? Well, they're actually not, but Jesus can. And Jesus is looking into the heart of this man, and he's, he's sincere in his self-righteousness. He, he's really trying to do his best, but Jesus desires something greater for him. He has a love for him. And, and, I, and I thought about this long and hard. Why does, why does Mark record this much more intently than the other authors? And I thought, ah, this is Peter. This is Peter, and Mark's recording Peter probably on this subject. And so here it's recorded that, recorded that Jesus looked at him and felt love for him. And I thought, oh, Peter, you did this as well, didn't you? You remember the account of Jesus' trial. We'll get to it soon. He has been arrested in the garden. He's been taken to the chief priest's home in the courtyard there. And there he is put into a room and he is on trial. And there he's being mocked and spit on and, and, and so forth. But Peter makes his way into the courtyard. Do you remember this? And he's warming himself by the fire. And somebody says, hey, aren't you worth Jesus? And what does he do? He denies him. A little while goes by, somebody else comes and says, hey, we've seen you with Jesus. Your very speech portrays you. You're a Galilean, he denies again. And then the third, when he calls down really fire from heaven, in a sense, is a very strong rejection of Jesus. I'm not that person. I'm a good person. I wouldn't follow someone like that. In essence, that's what he's saying. He's denying Christ. He's holding on to a self-righteousness. And in that moment, Luke chapter 23, 61, Jesus looked at him. It's recorded in the text. Have you ever seen that passage? It's got tear stains in my Bibles. Thought, oh, Lord, how many times have you looked at me when I was not standing for you? See, self-righteousness, see, I think Peter knew this. And as he reaccounts this, and Mark records it by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Peter is saying, he looked at him. I know that look. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And there with Jesus' face probably bloodied up, probably in some window where he was on trial, at an illegal trial at night by these Jewish leaders, he turns and looked at Jesus. He looked at Peter. And the verse says... The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before the rooster would crow today, you will deny me three times. Luke chapter 22, verse 61. And so I think there's an intensity to this. He looked at him and felt love for him. Well, what kind of love is this? Well, it denotes not just an emotional affection. This is agape love. The Bible uses that word agapeo for, for this young man. It's, it's Christ's desire for him. See, I think Jesus desired for this young man to let go of all of that stuff. Just like he desires that for each one of you and myself. Let go of it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says, God, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth, this is not a verse that protects the free will of man. Man's, free, man's will is not anything free. It's actually 
in captivity to sin. But it is a verse that tells us of this desirous will of God. God loves his highest creation. He made us as his highest creation. We are, we are the, the highest point of all that he created. He loves his creation. And he desires for man to be saved. That's, that's the desirous will of God. And certainly has a decreed will of God, right? He knows who's are his. He knows us from the foundations of the world. Before there was anything, he knew who we are. You can't deny that teaching within the Bible. But God is a God who loves his creation. I wrote in my notes as I thought about this because I know uh, we're, we teach a, a reformed doctrine just because we see that in the scripture here. And I said, God's choice does not depend on our faith. God's choice grants our faith. And, and so, but that doesn't mean that, that God doesn't know us from the foundation of the world, that he doesn't desire for people to be saved. And, and church, let me challenge us in our theology as we study the great doctrines of, of Christ's salvation. Do not miss that he loves mankind. Don't miss that he wants people to be saved, that he desires that. He has a desirous will, and we should have a desirous will for the lost. Do, do we realize what, what comes? Do, do, do you understand what comes at the end when he separates sheep and goats? Do you know where the goats go? It's terrible. It's for eternity. The worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And we should not either. And I, this is intense, isn't it? You look at this. Here's the creator of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, in human flesh, so he could die for us, has this intense love for this man who's trying to gain the kingdom on his own. That's an amazing God. He's way beyond me. I love my Lord. And I love that he could love a man who was way off track. And, and I don't know what happened to him, but here in verse 21, Jesus turns to him and says, Look, son, there's one thing you lack. He turns to him and he's going to point out the thing that's going to expose his self-righteousness the most and, and, and with an attempt, with a goal to show him that he needs to follow him. He says, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and here's the key, follow me. Follow me. Son, you have a deficiency You've come because you want to know that last little thing. Well, let me tell you what it is. Your self-righteousness is wound up in the things you have. It may not be for you. I mean, if it came down to the things I have, <laughs> I'm in trouble. <laughs> right? You go, I don't have a whole lot. This man was a property owner. The other gospel accounts tell us he, he probably had great wealth. And that, that's, that's, this is not a sermon about those who have money can't go to heaven. That's not what this is about. He's using this, per, this person, this scene, this particular event to show in this area, this man's self-righteousness was tied up in these things and would keep him from saving faith. Notice he says, one thing you lack of all important single devotion to God, saving faith is what he's talking about. Will you follow me? He had felt that I've kept these commandments, I've done all these things, but this is too much. 
He said, was this loving for God to do? Yes, it's loving. Think about this. It is so loving because Jesus Christ loved him so much that he exposed the one thing that was keeping him from eternal life. That's why you and I have to be Love, we have to love our children, our, our, our parents, our neighbors, our coworkers enough in a loving way like Christ did it here, in a loving way to say, hey friend, there is something keeping you from eternity. I am not the possessor of it. All I can do is tell you what God did for me, how God exposed the need of, of, of Jesus in my life to show me my sin. Can I share that with you? It is the most loving act Jesus does here trying to save his soul from hell. And it's spectacular. It's spectacular. Says, this is your issue. This is what it is. This is where your self-righteousness is, what you're cleaving to, what you're holding to, what you think you're going to gain from. Give it up. Give it up. Have treasure in heaven. Have treasure in heaven. That's all of Christ and all that comes with him. Notice verse 22, very sad disturbing verse, but at these words he was sad and then he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. The sad, disturbing reality he turns. It's a vivid dis- description here given by Mark. It was, it was the last thing he would hear. And, and his countenance falls, and, he, he's, and deep gloom falls over him is the idea of the word. The, the Greek phrase has the idea that he was made sorrowful into grief beyond repair. His idol. That's, that's what God does with us. He reaches into our hearts, takes our idols and sits them there and go, what are you going to bow to? You think this is going to get you there? Your view of yourself and your good works, your riches, your wealth, your lineage, your bloodlines. Do you think this is going to get He does that for us. That's the kindness of God. Somewhere along the line, you who are saved in here, God did that. He reached into your heart and showed you your sin and says, do you want to live for this? Or do you want to believe in my son who died and he opens your mind and he floods faith into it and you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I thought about this young man a long time this week. Man, I want him saved. Everything in me wants to share the gospel with this young man if I could go and find him. Many people have written on him. There's all kinds of people speculate that he got saved later. There's nowhere in the Bible that tells us that, but a lot of people did get saved Shortly after this, 3,000 at Pentecost, 5,000 the next day, 4,000 just shortly after that. I'm hoping this young man came to faith. But the answer is still the same. Set aside all that you deem as worthy and come to God empty-handed. For there's a little Pharisee in all of us. There's a little Pharisee in all of us. Look as we briefly go down through these next verses. You can see the scene here, can't you? This man has now turned and walked away. Jesus is there now with his disciples and looking around, he said to his disciples, not to maybe crowds or anybody else, he looks to his disciples and says, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. How hard will it be for those to lay down the things that they love the most to enter the kingdom of God? And notice in verse 24, um, the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus turns and answers it again, said to them, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? He's, he says it again. They, they seem to be amazed. Look at 24, this word is astonishment. 
They're like astonished. If that guy can't get in, what are we going to do? <laughs> you can see them. They're wrestling with this. Man, that guy's kept everything from his youth. You can see Peter going, man, open mouth, insert foot. I'm done. That's us, right? So many of us. And they're looking at it with amazement at this. They still don't understand what Christ is about to do. They're following him, but they still don't understand it. And notice in verse 24, he calls them children. This is so important. You better connect children to the previous text. Children come to me by faith. And so I think it's a, it's a very uh, important point here. Look, you are the ones who receive the kingdom of God. You are the ones who come without deeds and works. So children, I want you to know this. It's very hard to enter the kingdom of God. He gives a little idiom here, a, a little figure of speech. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And you've heard all kinds of illustrations of this, and people make up all kinds of things. But it, everything I researched, it was just a, a humorous suggestion. A, a needle... It's not some gate or something. You've heard all those illustrations. A needle. You know what a needle is, right? You know, I, those of us who can't see anymore. It's crazy. <laughs> the camel was the largest beast of burden in Palestine in that area that would carry man's stuff or man. So he chose the largest thing that they would know and say, yeah, go stuff that through the eye of a needle. It's what? Impossible. So what's he doing? He, he, look, he's saying, look, disciples, you better get this down because if you don't, you're gonna teach works. You better understand that it's impossible for man to get to God on their own works. And you're gonna teach a gospel that is not based on their works. And you're gonna watch me die. And you're gonna watch me be raised from the dead. And you're gonna be filled with the spirit. And you're gonna go out and preach a gospel that doesn't have any of this stuff in it. It doesn't have people coming and going, well, I've done all this from my youth. It's hard. It's hard. In verse 26, they were even more astonished after his little illustration and said to them, look at this, who can be saved? Do you think they understood the gospel at this point? God was keeping them. He was preserving them. He was going to flood the spirit into their hearts and minds after his resurrection. But to them, they looked at this and said, I can't do this. This is too much. How can anybody do this? It's, this, is, this is impossible. Who can be saved? And look at their, their statement, verse 27. Uh, Mark records this. Looking, here's that penetrating look again of Jesus. There's that look, right? Looking at them, Jesus said, oh, don't you love this phrase? With people, it is impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. See, there's hope for that rich young ruler. I don't know what God did and if he saved that young man or not, but it's not impossible for him. I want you to look, think about yourself right here this morning. Do you believe, left to yourself, that is impossible for you to get to heaven? You've got to answer that question. Is it impossible, left to yourself, that you can get to heaven? You cannot be saved if you don't say, it's impossible. I have nothing to offer God. 
I am completely, 100%, empty-handed, total dependence upon Jesus' saving grace and God plunging faith into my mind and my heart in order to follow him. That's where we're at. And so Jesus says, well, I can do that. (laughs) You can't. But Jesus is saying, I can do that. I can plunge faith into your heart. I can make you trust in my son's finished work way beyond any of your efforts could ever come close to. Isn't that great? That's good news. Because I look at this and I go, I'm just like the rich young ruler. I'm going, I can't get there. It's possible through Jesus. This is what God does. And he does it over and over and over Verse 28, and Peter began to say, behold, we have left everything and followed you. This is why I called this little thing, we have a little Pharisee in all of us. Peter's going, well, wait a minute, hold on. Um, You told that guy that he should sell everything and follow you. Hey, we've done that. Is this the last piece of the puzzle? Do we get in because we've left everything? Remember the fishing boat thing, God? You know, you called me, I said, yeah, we put down our nets and left. Remember that? And, and, he's, and, and there's, there's probably more physical than spiritual thinking here on Peter's part at this point. But Peter's going to come to this, right? He's going to be one of the greatest preachers of human preachers ever hit the earth when he gets this understanding of the true gospel, right? But he's thinking more spiritual than physical here. There's a little bit of self-righteousness here. Well, hey, we left everything. You know, Matthew, he was a tax collector, had a bunch of money. He walked away. All these guys, right? And Jesus in the last statement, says some remarkable things. And he gives the cost, number five, the cost and the reward of following Jesus. And I want to finish with this because this is an amazing text and misused many times, but I want you to understand it. He's speaking to these men who have not yet had the Spirit of God fill them. They don't understand exactly what he's about to do to go to the cross and die for them. But they are following him, and God is leading them along. So Jesus says to them, he didn't say this to the rich young ruler. He doesn't say this to Pharisees. He doesn't say it to these these people who will nail him to the cross. He says it to these men because he knows their future. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother, or sister, or mother, or father, or children, or farm, for my sake and for the, for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in this present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecution, and in the age to come, eternity. And so here Jesus begins to speak about something greater than what they were thinking Here he says, look, there's no one who has left these things for my sake that will not gain something. Now, before we talk about the gain, I want to talk about the source. Notice in the end of verse 29, he says, for my sake and for the gospel's sake. That's your motivation. You did not walk away from your self-righteousness, your religious or your goodness that you thought you could bring without the motivation of the glory of God. Somewhere along the line, when you got saved, whether you were young or old or in between, you had to see the glory of God in Christ. You had to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians uh, 3, 18, I think. See the, uh, 4, 6, excuse me. 4, 6. You had to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. You had to say, he's worth it. 
somewhere along the line. And it motivates you. The glory of God, all of who he is, that he would want a relationship with me, that this God who was perfect and has always existed and always will exist, who has never sinned, who is pure in everything, he wants a relationship with me. Oh, that's for the sake of his glory. And then for the sake of the gospel, he took this wretch, he took this man who did not deserve salvation, he deserves the judgment of God, and God shed his grace on me, take, took me from that condemned position from, a, from under the wrath of God and made me his friend, made me his son. Oh, that's the motivation. But look what he says. And this is not prosperity gospel because I want to explain this. No one who has left house, brother, sister, mother, father, children, farm, for my sake, the glory of God, for the glory of the gospel, but will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Now that's interesting. This is where the prosperity gospel comes in and say, look, give all your money to us and you're gonna get all this stuff. This is the verse they use. That's not what he's saying. You know how special this verse is to those of us that love the church? Because Jesus is talking about we're gonna be joined with people that we had no idea that we'd be in fellowship with. Not only, look, I want you, let me see if I can put this. What I gained when I became a Christian, let's see if I can use this and maybe you put yourself in my shoes. What I gained is a hundred times. You know how many moms I have in this church? And they come up and tell me, you spend time with Gina? <laughs> I gained all of you when I became a Christian. You know how many sisters in the Lord I have here that I love dearly? You became my sister in the Lord. You know how many brothers I have in this room and throughout the world and missionaries and places around the world? You know how many brothers I have in Christ? A hundred times what God gave me of physical brothers I have in spiritual brothers. If my house got knocked off its foundation by a hurricane, how many of you would come and help me? We're doing it with people we don't even know in the Bahamas. We have missionaries flip their car over and people come up and give hundreds of dollars just for this man that some of them have never met. Oh, you're rich. If you're part of God's church, if you're truly saved and put into his family, you are beyond wealthy. <laughs> you can't put a limit on it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Look, you're going to have all this. In this present age, you're going to have houses because if I'm homeless, you're going to take me in. Won't you? Just please nod your head because I'm getting worried. Thank you. <laughs> you're my brother. You're my sister. You're my mother. You're my children. And just one more point of application. Some of us don't have children that are walking with the Lord or you've gone through something or you have a family member. I, I find great hope in this church. I found great encouragement this week because not all of us have every family member who goes to the same church and is walking with the Lord. Some of us are, are hurting over children or family or moms or dads or cousins or whatever that reject Jesus Christ. This verse reminds me that I'm placed in a great family. And yeah, we have our squabbles, don't we? Why'd you guys do this? We hear that as elders. We're family. We got a few problems. But we got ahead of our family who solves it all. And we turn to him. And we're the family of God. And he's blessed us. But he says one more thing in here we don't want to miss. He says, and persecution. Ugh. That comes with the deal here on this present age. But I tell you what, I want to go through persecution with you. I want to stand with you when the time comes where they try to reject our Savior to the point where they will take our lives. I want to be with you. 
because we'll stand together and God will knit our hearts together in those difficult times. And then, brother and sister, look at the end. He says, and in the coming age, eternal life. Now, a hundred times doesn't even match that. The asphalt is gold. Christ is the sun, the moon, and the stars. I, I mean, it just goes on and on. Unbelievable what we receive. He's reminding them, follow me. It's worth it. Last statement, verse 31. You guys thought this was about a potluck, but it's not. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Right? Well, you know, I, I, uh, you know what? When there's some of the food, I always let somebody go forward. I, I believe that verse. Well, I, that doesn't have anything to do with this verse. <laughs> this means everyone's equal in the kingdom of God. In the family of God, everyone's equal. Young, old, those who have been in the faith for years, those who newly came into the faith. We walk into the presence of God completely equal, in, in, in equality. And even today, we're equal. God gives me something to do. It's very different maybe than what you do. But you have a role and I have a role to bring God's glory and we stand equal before him in Christ. So brothers and sisters, friends that are here that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, reject our self-righteousness. It's always creeping in. Lord, I got nothing. Last week, I got sticky little hands. That's all I got. (laughs) My faith is in you. Amen? Father, thank you for the truth of this message. We, we see, some of us see ourselves. I was saved at a young age, raised in church. If their church doors were open, we were there. And it's so easy, Lord, to fall back on our own efforts. And you say, get rid of it all and follow me. Get rid of anything in our lives that stop us from following you. And so, Lord, I pray that we, as he turns to disciples and looks at us with that penetrating look, that today we would realize and we would confess, each one of us, something that's in our life that keeps us from really following behind you, really getting into your shadow, right behind the dust of your feet, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray we would confess those things because we believe in you, Jesus. We believe you died for us. We believe you paid the ultimate price so we could be in your family and we could have all these brothers and sisters and and all of this beautiful relationship within the church. So Lord, not let self-righteousness take us away, Lord, and cloud our view of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. Strengthen us. Thank you for this church, Lord. Cause us to be a church that runs after Jesus through his word. In your name, amen.